Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're discussing energy prices and the implications of recent spikes and fluctuations for economies and for investors. We're going to speak with one of our Bulletin regulars, Paul Donovan, UBS Wealth Management's Chief Economist. Paul's joining me today to provide us with a special primer on energy price flux and how this has been reshaping the landscape across geopolitics, economics and for consumer prices too. Paul Donovan, thanks as always for joining us. It's great to catch up with you. To kick off, Paul, just to sort of remind us why the kinds of geopolitical volatility, instability we're seeing, why that has such an immediate knock-on in this instance, of course, to energy provision and price. Well, what we've got with the Russia-Ukraine war is effectively two potential sources of disruption. So the first of these is that as the war has escalated, there is a risk that gas supplies or oil supplies from Russia to the rest of the world could be disrupted, either by the conflict itself or by some form of sanctions or retaliation on the part of Russia. And so that has raised concerns about the security of future supply. And if you worry about future supply, you may be inclined to hoard energy, hoard oil, for example, today, and that increases demand and creates an imbalance. The other issue, though, is sort of voluntary sanctions, where a number of companies have felt the reputational risk of doing business with Russia is such that they don't want to buy energy from Russia. And so what we're seeing, for example, is oil shipments by tanker from Russia are down very significantly. And that's because shipping companies just don't want to touch Russian oil because they fear that that would lead to their brand being damaged, there'd be a social media storm against them and so on. And so there is actually also an absolute decline in supply as well as the fear of future disruption to supply. And then, Paul, give us a sense of how those pressures serve to then influence. I guess, obviously, it's pretty immediate where you have those kinds of pressures, the the kind of wholesale prices. But the fact that, you know, consumers feel this pinch so quickly in particular markets, I guess, again, it's self-evidently the case that that would happen. But how, I don't know, is it is it much more incendiary or more volatile than it's been before for any particular reason? I wouldn't say it's more volatile. And we do have to remember that, you know, if, if you try and pour a barrel of crude oil into your car, bad things will happen. So the price that we pay as consumers for energy is very, very different from the crude price. There's an awful lot of labor that goes into the the petrol or gasoline or diesel that we're buying versus the crude oil, the processing, the distribution, the retail, the advertising, all of that's labor cost. And so it's not quite as straightforward as crude prices up, you immediately translates through into the price we pay for fuel, because a lot happens to it afterwards. And of course, there's taxation. And some governments, uh, including the UK government just this week, have been reducing taxation on oil, albeit not by very much, because that's one way of trying to soften the hit to 
consumer household budgets. So we are seeing some other factors to consider. Do you squeeze profit margins in the distribution chain? Do you change taxation? Are labor costs coming under pressure in the oil industry? And that might possibly mitigate some of the effects. So in the scale of moves that we've been seeing in crude oil prices, it's only going to be a very slight mitigation overall. Paul, one thing that's really interesting, obviously, there are always demands for interventions to take place on some level or another. And this current price crisis has, well, it sparked a growing number of those in certain sectors. In the electricity market, there seem to have been more. In gas, not so many. But how, I don't know, how easy is it to intervene, whether you're looking on an EU block-wide basis or individual nation states? It's never the easiest thing. And it's a path that's fraught with all sorts of other pressures, right? Well, I think governments basically face a choice. If they feel that this is a short-term spike in energy prices, albeit one that's very damaging to consumers, they might feel that, okay, well, we can temporarily subsidize those energy prices. And that means that you end up with a, a larger fiscal deficit, which obviously you've got to deal with over the longer term, but the consumer doesn't feel the effect so much. But if you feel this is longer term or uh, you believe that there is going to be future supply disruption, subsidizing doesn't really work in that situation. You know, what you need to do in that situation is reduce demand for oil or gas. And one way of reducing demand is by raising the price, of course. So you don't necessarily want to shield consumers so much, although it's painful in the short term, the government hopes that by failing to intervene and by forcing consumers to accept the higher price, consumers change their behavior. Now, this, I think, is going to be one of the really interesting aspects of the current energy price increase. How much do we see consumer behavior changing in this situation? Because as we've come out of the pandemic, an awful lot has changed in the global economy. And some of these measures potentially could reduce energy demand quite meaningfully. For example, why should I pay a lot more money to put petrol into my car to drive to the office if I don't need to be in the office and I can work from home? So you may see more home working, which could significantly reduce energy demand. Things like online shopping potentially reduce energy demand rather than having 30 consumers drive to the supermarket and drive back again. You have one delivery van that follows a fuel efficient route and delivers to all 30 consumers. And that helps you know, keep energy consumption low. So there's structural changes that could really shift energy demand in response to the higher price, governments probably don't want to stand in the way of those structural changes because that's actually helpful. But at the same time, they've got to be mindful of the fact that some people don't have the flexibility, some people have to drive to work, they don't have the choice, and they don't want to have too many people suffering too much, particularly, of course, if they're lower income households. Yeah, Paul, and one thing I find really interesting is this narrative that what we're seeing at the moment is something that will accelerate a number of these pre-existing trends. Some are in the realm of energy interdependence or energy dependence for, for certain nations. And this idea of the energy transition more broadly, are there legs to that idea that there could be a silver lining here? It's about the energy transition. And I guess consequently then, there are opportunities in this period of upheaval that canny investors, for example, can look to potentially exploit? 
I think the combination of changing energy source and energy efficiency is actually a narrative that's that's quite well established. I mean, if you compare where the world is today with where we were in 1973, the first OPEC oil shock, it takes 56% less oil to generate a dollar of GDP today in real terms than it did in 1973. And that's because with each successive oil price spike, people have more aggressively pursued energy efficiency. And then, of course, when the oil price comes down afterwards, people don't say, oh, well, in that case, we'll go back to the old way of doing things. Once you've moved to a more efficient way, once you've put insulation in the roof of your house, you don't rip it out when the oil price comes back down. You know, you've, you've made your efficiency change and you stick with it. So I think that there is an interesting narrative. We're overlaying that now, I think, with also the, the concept of energy security, which has come back, I think, a little bit more forcefully uh, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so it may well be that now we start to see an additional incentive, not just the economic incentive, but an additional national incentive to pursue energy security, either through uh, greater efficiency or through primarily renewable resources, which are obviously a lot more secure for the most part. I suspect that actually we'll get momentum behind both of these at the same time. And Paul, just a note then for investors, obviously, I guess it serves as a timely reminder to expect the unexpected. You know, there are these periods of geopolitical instability that can change the landscape quite dramatically. But what have some, you know, I've read some interesting comments. People have said, well, look, you know, this could uh, derail the e-mobility revolution because actually charging your electric car is so much more expensive than anybody thought. It's not something that's going to irreversibly trend some of those other big secular trends, is it? I don't think so. I think it will cause people to reassess the economics of some of these issues, look at more efficient ways. For example, as you're saying, with with electric vehicles, well, if electricity prices are going up, that is also a cost, albeit they still are generally cheaper to run than a fossil fuel-driven car. But again, then you can start to say, okay, well, if I'm charging my car at home overnight, maybe I put solar panels on the roof of the house. And in that way, you know, mitigate the cost. So I think that people are going to be reassessing how they use energy, where they use energy. And again, as I said, you know, uh, perhaps some bigger picture questions about is that journey really necessary, which was a, an old British wartime phrase at, a, again, a time when, when energy was being rationed. Well, actually, I think people will start questioning that. Do I really need to travel to the supermarket when I can just click online to order? Do I really need to go into the office or can I just do my job perfectly well from home today? Those sort of questions, I think, come up a little bit more. Just talk to us a bit about that oil price spike and how how immediate that impact is and what that means, you know, in terms of how people sort of feel it in their pocketbooks, if you will. Crude oil is not something that consumers use. You cannot pour a barrel of crude oil into the fuel tank of your car without there being very, very dire consequences indeed. So we've got to remember that a lot of what we pay for fuel, a lot of the price that we see is about taxation and it's about labor costs. At a global level, crude oil is roughly 2.3% 
of the world economy. Now, that means that when we consider the full economic impact of crude oil prices, not only you know, the, the cost of petrol that you put in your car, but the, the crude oil that is embedded in your cup of coffee, because your cup of coffee takes electricity to manufacture, and that electricity may have come from crude oil, it's 2.3% of the consumer price inflation basket. Now, obviously, the issue is that oil prices can move very large amounts. 2.3% doesn't sound like a lot, and it's not a great deal in terms of a weighting. But if the oil price doubles, as it has done, more or less, a 100% increase in the price of oil will add 2.3 percentage points to consumer price inflation. So hypothetically, consumer price inflation would go from 5% to 7.3%. So crude oil doesn't necessarily have a huge weighting in the inflation basket, but big, big price moves translate through into an impact in terms of consumer spending. Huge thanks, as always, for this week's special primer on energy prices to our friend Paul Donovan. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.